Uh, hello, everyone. Today is, uh, I don't even know, it's Tuesday. The day, the Tuesday after Bellator 138 and UFC Fight Night 69. My name is Luke Thomas. This is uh, technically the Monday Morning Analyst. So it wasn't out yesterday because my boss, who essentially runs the site, is on vacation for like two weeks. He abandoned me, so I have to run the site. And you don't care about that, but just take my word for it. It's a lot of moving pieces. So I uh, wasn't able to get to it. Um, so here's what I'm going to do on this edition of the Monday Morning Analyst. I'm just going to talk about Kimbo Shamrock in terms of the fight-fixing allegations. Now, that is, I admit, slightly disrespectful, if not somewhat disrespectful, if not outright disrespectful to Joanna and Jacek. However, um, you know, she's an incredible champion. What she pr produced on Saturday against Jessica Penny in Berlin is phenomenal. Um, but there's other people who have broken that down better than I have. I think uh, guys like Patrick Wyman and Connor Rebush um, deserve a lot of credit for that. So check out some of their work on that. Others have as well. Um, but... Um, I want to focus in on this because it's actually a fairly hot topic and a bit of a debate about what's happening here. Um, and I know some some people who are fairly outspoken about it have some pretty good credentials as far as um, you know understanding the fight game and being a part of it. And um, guys like Joe Rogan, I'm, I'm I haven't seen, him, but I'm told guys like Vinny Magalhaes, who you know, one of my favorite grapplers, has spoken out about it. Some other ones too, maybe James Cross, maybe Scott Jorgensen. I'm not entirely sure who the list is um, um, beyond Joe and Vinny, but. Um, all smart guys, all guys who know a lot more about the game in many ways than I do. So I'm not here to tell you um, um, to not listen to their perspective. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is to, to entertain other ones as well. I'm also not trying to tell you that I know more about the ground game than them because I definitely don't. But I am going to just tell you what I know, and hopefully that becomes at least somewhat convincing. And if not, it doesn't. But uh, I'm just going to present what I think is the more probable thing that we should be looking at rather than making what I think is a non-probable claim of fight fiction. Because this is all, to me, really a degree of probability. Um, and I think once I present to you my case, you might find it, I hope, maybe we'll see, a little bit more likely to uh, accept. Okay. A couple of things. I was in attendance there. I actually covered the Kimbo Shamrock fight. Um, nothing ever occurred to me that anything was amiss at all. It wasn't until sort of conversation heated up after the fact. I guess Rogan was doing his companion podcast. I'm not entirely sure about that. But whatever the case, it wasn't until I got home that I started sort of seeing this snowball a bit. And I still think it's basically the minority that believes this. But there is, I think Dan Lebertard was kind of joking about it. So um, so what, what happened here? To me, my theory is as follows. My theory is basically that what you saw was just bad MMA between two old, old guys, 141, 151, combined age of 92, two guys who um, I was worried about getting a license from a commission to even compete. Um, I can tell you that ahead of time, from my understanding, that Kimbo does train an American top team but seems to have private coaching and private lessons. I don't know to what extent he actually mixes in with the other fighters um, beyond what Coach Mike Brown uh, controls for him. Uh, I, can't, I can't say with any certainty, but that was basically the feedback I got talking to some of the ATT fighters down in, um, in St. Louis. Ken had told me when I interviewed him for this fight that he hadn't trained the ground game in, quote, years prior to this fight. Hadn't trained the ground in years. And he pointed to the fact that not just the guys he had lost to, but he said, look at his previous fights. They were all basically stand-up affairs because his body was wrecked um, and he couldn't train the ground and just chose not to, just chose to basically stand and bang. This was the first camp he said he trained on the ground. Now, to what extent? I don't know. I would submit to you that training on the ground, to me, doesn't mean a whole lot. There's so many positions that are involved that training the ground, you, you, you know... Uh, 
it's almost like, um, you know, Michael Phelps being like, yeah, I got back in the swimming pool. Well, well, okay. But were you doing butterfly? Were you doing, you know, what were you doing in there? I mean, there's so many different varieties of things you can do. Were you working back mount control? Were you working heel hooks? Were you working Kimuras from side? In the open workout, he was doing a lot of side-to-side Kimura setups. A lot of them. In fact, I think that's all he did. A little bit of guard passing from open guard, standing open guard passing into Kimuras. No chokes, um, no leg locks, no nothing. Just Kimuras. Now, again, what does that all mean? In the end, that's open to interpretation. I'm just telling you what I saw and what he told me. So that's sort of like how these two entered it. Kimbo entered as the favorite. So here's what I saw. What I saw was, and the fight, by the way, is on Spike TV or Spike.com, and Spike replayed it. Like if they have any, because there's different theories, which we'll get to, about what the fight fixing was. Was it just Ken? Was it just Ken and Kimbo? Was it Ken, Kimbo, and Bellator? There's, there's no one unified theory of fight fixing here. There's actually different varieties, and, and there's actually no real consensus about what that's supposed to be, even among the people who are floating it. And even among the people who are floating the same kind of theory, right, they say it's just Ken. Their motivations for arguing it all differ from the other. So that's one problem with the, what's happening here is that we're, we're saying fight fixing, which is a, uh, a bold term with massive consequences, and the architecture behind that, there's no consensus even among the people who are saying it. So it's a really sort of um, bizarre situation. But what I saw was Ken take the back uh, when Kimbo tried to go to his base, realized he couldn't get up fast enough. Ken takes it. Um, you know, it wasn't the greatest back take in the world, but it wasn't the worst one. It was okay. I mean, the guy's 51. What do you expect? Um, so he takes the back, and he sinks the choke. Kimbo does a bad job of hand fighting. He sort of tries to hand fight underneath the elbow rather than keeping his you know one hand up here and then trying to grab the hands. Now, he eventually hand fights better, but I'm talking about the initial one. Uh, Ken gets under his chin, drives his hips in, flattens him. Kimbo sort of tries, to, tries to hand fight here, and it doesn't go that great. Ken gets it pretty far under. And this is where I think some folks have, I think we have some different ideas. So folks have said, well, that was a perfectly sunk rear naked choke. I would submit to you that it wasn't. I would submit to you that it was a deep choke, but it was not a perfectly sunk one because I'm not sure what perfect means. First of all, I don't even think it looked perfect from a technical standpoint in terms of textbook. Again, I do not know as much jujitsu as some of the people who have some deep concerns about the veracity of, of, this, of this fight. I'm just going to tell you what I know. And then you can make a decision about what that means. Here's how I was taught about the rear naked choke. doesn't have to be this way, but an ideal way is you want to get your elbow centered on the chest as much as possible. Because if you think about it, that means bicep, forearm, no daylight in between. You grab the bicep. And one thing that Ken was doing that was totally wrong was he was keeping his hand almost on the forehead like this. So bad. It's so bad because you can just hand fight. Now, even... With the hand fighting, people said, well, why didn't he go to the gable grip? There's lots of different discussions there. But the way I was taught was you want arm as much as possible. Again, that's negotiable, but as much as possible in the middle, gripping the bicep, kind of high on the bicep, not low on the bicep either. Because when you're low, you start getting into this territory where it's it's a little hard to get the crunch you want. You're kind of forcing. You're going to squish your fingers together. It's a bit of an issue. So you want it high on the bicep, high, almost like you can your thumb can touch your shoulder, right? And then you squeeze. But when you come in, you snake behind the neck. You don't like tomahawk chop behind it, which is what Ken was doing. Um, right? He was sort of like, he was like coming like this. And at first it didn't matter because Kimbo's fighting over here, not over here. Uh, so what did I see? I see him get that. I see him drive his hips in. I see him hand here. 
If your hand is here, to me, that tells me your hand is not here and you're not way behind. You should be here. Your hand should be behind it. You should be look. I was taught you should be looking at your palm and you should be avoiding the head, but by resting your head against theirs. That is what I was taught, almost like a street style rear naked choke defense in case they start banging backwards. Not legal in MMA, but you get the idea. So that's how I was taught. And you have to snake it behind the neck, not reverse tomahawk chop, okay? And then you're here. And then you can kind of, there's different ways to squeeze and seal and push the elbows together if you want. There's a lot of different varieties to finish. Ken didn't do that. Ken had this, almost a right angle here, okay? Folks, there's daylight in that choke. There just is. And here's how you know. Because if you have a really, really deep rear naked choke, they just go. <laughs> and they go quickly. And you see Kimbo grimace really hard with his teeth. But what you eventually see is they roll to the same side as he has the hands. Kimbo does not tap, although he kind of came close with a double hand pat, which John McCarthy addressed. But he doesn't go out. And then they roll to the same side as the hands. And then you see what does Ken do? He drops his arm and then brings it back up because he's trying to cinch the choke. But when he brings it back up, Kimbo catches the hand. And then they begin to hand fight, and then it becomes the whole thing becomes unraveled. Okay, here's how I understand things. Here's how I view things. Again, I am not Bouchesha by any stretch of the imagination. But to me, when you apply a submission on someone, it is a negotiation. It's a weird negotiation because I am trying to elicit your surrender. And you are trying to apply either maximum physical force, so there's different techniques you can do depending on the submission to get out of it, but also it's a question of your mental wherewithal. And you see guys like Gary Tonin, how did he not tap to that armbar that Crone put on him at ADCC? That would have stopped 99% of black belts, but it didn't stop Gary because Gary's pain threshold, his body awareness, and his mental commitment to escaping allows him to push himself to ridiculous limits. Now, certainly Gary Tonin is not in the same level uh, as Kimbo Slara, uh, far beyond the level of Kimbo Slice. But so is Crone above um, Ken Shamrock. And so this is, for example, to me, a thing I run into personally all the time. My head and arm triangle is real bad. It's okay in no gi, but it's not that great in the gi. And one of the things I used to, I was taught, you know, um, hand comes under, palm faces the, uh, um, how does that come under? I always do it from the wrong side. Palm, uh, palm comes uh, facing the mat, and then you give a grip, and then you cut the angle, right? You go like this, and that cinches the choke. I've been taught more recently that the guys are coming up and they're using their chest to, to compress the near side arm. And so that's the better way to do it. I've been having trouble doing it. But what the point is, I can get via the size of my body and with that angle, I can get dudes gurgling all the time. I can get them gurgling here. But I have a problem finishing it. Obviously, there's something wrong with my technique. It's, you know, or you're, you know, if you go against somebody very good, they just know all these little nooks and crannies to avoid it. My point being is what you will find in a lot of situations is there's no such thing as the perfect technique. Some people will tap to a, a, a rear naked choke where there is daylight. Some folks won't. Some folks won't tap to the most ridiculously placed rear naked choke because maybe uh, they know you're tired and you can't hold on. Or maybe some guys tap to a, weir, a weak rear naked choke because they're tired. There's, it's a spectrum at all times about what works and what puts guys away. Obviously, the better your technique and the better your application – the more will work. And in addition, the weaker their defensive instincts, the weaker their mental commitment to uh, withstanding it, the more uh, they'll resist. Again, there are differences here once you break a limb. Sometimes even that won't work. I mean, Jacques Ray got his arm broken by Hodger Grace. He still beat him. Um, but, you know, certainly if you get put to sleep, that's sort of the, the close of the show, right? That's the, sort of the final 
thing here. Like you didn't tap, but biologically your body sort of quit for you. But I'm just trying to point out to you that um, the technique being described was not perfectly applied. Most techniques, many techniques, don't have to be perfectly applied. But once you start stepping down from the layers of um, precision that you need to put guys away, and then you start trying to he-man the choke, which is what I think Ken tried to do, and it doesn't work, you know you're going to resist. If I know that someone has a deep choke on me and it's painful, but I can feel just a little bit of daylight and I've got enough energy left, I might try waiting you out. I might try waiting you out. And then the second I feel the hand come off, I'm grabbing it. And then I'm pulling it down. That's what I'm going to do. That is an entirely common scenario in gyms across this country, in gyms across this world, and in the section of MMA that I think many fans are not accustomed to. People were saying there's no UFC fighter who would ever do something like this. And I agree. You will never catch a high-level mixed martial artist making mistake on either end hand fighting on the elbow side, and then locking it up with a weird angle, hand on top of the forehead. You just won't see a high-level guy ever do that. You ever seen BJ Penn slap on a rear naked choke? <laughs> it looks a lot different, right? Again, his elbow may not necessarily be uh, perfectly placed, but his squeeze, he knows exactly how to move his arm and squeeze, and he's got the hand always behind the head. He always has the hand behind the head because you don't want someone to hand uh, reach their hand up and start hand fighting. All right, so... So that's what I saw. I saw a guy commit to a choke that was deep, but improperly, or at least imperfectly applied. Lots of, not lots of wiggle room, but enough wiggle room so that when he didn't tap and he didn't go out, he was forced to try and cinch it. And when he tried to cinch it, he let the hand go. Guys don't want to let go of chokes they think are deep, even if they're not sure that it's on all the way, because they want to see if you'll go out from it. A lot of times that'll happen. Again, not everyone has the same resistance to your chokes or your arm bars, or your bow and arrows, or whatever the case may be. Guys have a different ranges of tolerances. And I don't know that Kimbo has the highest tolerance in the world. I don't know that he has the worst tolerance in the world. But I know in that particular scenario, Ken tried to he-man it with a little bit of daylight left, and it didn't work. And how do we know there was daylight? Because he didn't go out. If that choke, if Vinny had put on that choke properly, and which he obviously knows how to do, Kimbo Slice would have gone out like that if he had chosen not to tap. But, he, but Kimbo didn't. His body didn't biologically quit on him. So that means there was daylight left in that choke. And when then there's daylight left in that choke and he had to readjust, here's the scenario. That is where we are. And then, then Kimbo, to his credit, doesn't get a lot of credit for the uh, escape, which was not the most technical thing in the world, but he actually slid up on Ken at an angle and got his shoulders to the mat. Ken tried to go for the mount, missed it, and it caused a scramble. But actually, Kimbo should get a little bit of credit for that. So that's what happened there. It was a negotiation where I think Ken tried to he-man it and from a less than perfectly applied choke, far less than perfectly applied, uh, and it didn't work. And when it didn't work and he tried to readjust, that's when everything came undone for him. Um, I don't think a guy who's 51 who is not a rear naked choke expert has a lot of resolve himself to finish that choke. That's another portion of it. Even if you know the person beneath you is resisting and you can feel maybe there's a little bit of daylight there, um, but I'm just going to I'm gonna crank so hard that you can make guys quit. That's why some guys quit from face cranks and some guys don't. You know, if you get a guy who's got an awesome face crank and you can feel their jaw breaking and they got the body triangle and all you have the body triangle, they're driving their hips in. So you're getting extended it is super painful, super uncomfortable. That will make some guys quit. Other guys won't quit. They just won't. It's a negotiation. That's what's happening there. So, um, 
So that's basically how I saw what happened. Now, there are a couple of other things that folks have, have mentioned here. Some have said, well, you know, Ken is a submission expert. He is and he isn't, you know. He's a bit of a limb twister. If he had given up on a really deep heel hook, that to me would have been a little bit more suspect. If he had given up maybe on a Kimura, even then I don't know because, you know, Kimuras are a bit of a He-Man move too. But rear naked chokes, Ken has no rear naked choke victories from any moment gloves were introduced. And if you go back and look at the ones he has with without gloves, some of them, I think the one he had at UFC, I want to say three or two, I'm not sure which one it was, he has this. He's gripping the forearm and trying to come up under. And it works because this is a different era and guys don't know what they're doing. And Ken had huge arms and he can make it work. You know, you look at the the, the um, head and arm triangle that Brock Lesnar had on, um, on um, Shane Carwin. There's no, I watched that fight with a jiu-jitsu black belt, Seth Smith out of 50-50. There's no one who's ever going to look at that and be like, that is perfect technique. But, you know, you can he-man it if you're Brock Lesnar and Shane Carwin, as we know, was badly tired. So the two sort of factors made it work there. But these guys were fresh. They weren't gassed. And if the choke is improperly applied, not everyone is going to succumb to that. Um, but there's this argument that Ken is like this super awesome submission guy. Ken knew submissions more than most people when MMA got started. Um, but, you know, he got submitted at UFC 1. Now, he's got great submissions. His his sort of, like, awesome Kimura that he got on Matt Hume back in the Pancrase days is kind of cool. But he's a guy known for cranking. Jimmy Smith uh, talked about it as well. Go back to the Don Fry fight. How long have these two spent time just yanking on each other's ankles without anyone ever getting anywhere? Um, and that was when he was much fresher. This is a guy who I think you can question some of his resolve in fights to finish. Um, the Fujita fight where he looked good early, and he was like, I'm having a heart attack, beating my heart, throwing the towel. There's all kinds of sort of factors you can look at here that say this guy's got a demonstrated history of he's got some ability in submissions. Rear naked choke and back control has never, ever been one of them. I don't think he's, I don't think he's like uh, an amateur at it, but I don't think this is something he rehearsed particularly well. This is not something he has a long career in. These are not the, you know, and you add in the gloves that has always been pro- <clears throat> problematic for not just him, but for anyone trying to finish. This is not, you cannot point to that as like his area of expertise. Heel hooks, maybe so. Um, and even then, the fry fight, it didn't really work all that well. So so that to me was like, well, he should know how to finish that. Should he? Didn't train ground for years. Not an area of expertise. A bit of a limb twister. A bit of a guy who is submission before position sometimes when he tries to hulk out and finish these things. I don't know That's a, that's a fair argument at all, quite frankly. Um, now, Slice's defense was not great, but I mentioned he hand fought once there was readjustment and then got his shoulders to the mat. So this idea that like Slice was just like... People have said, oh, well, the choke was on, and Ken just let it go. No, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. He lost the hand-fighting battle once. He tried to he-man it, and it didn't work. That's what tried to happen. There's an actual explanation for, for what that is. So, um, so that was one part of the argument. But, uh, and then, you know, okay, so that's, that's how I saw, essentially saw it, um, both live and then when I watched the tape again. And again, it's up there for anyone who wants to see it. Like, Spike has not taken it down. They don't seem particularly concerned about it. Bellator doesn't seem particularly concerned about it, and I don't think they should be. So then let's get into, like, what, what, what is probable here. Because someone said to me, well, can you rule it out? No, I cannot rule it out. I cannot rule it out on this match or any other one. I can't. It's impossible. Nothing can be ruled out. What we're only talking about here is absent, um, um, incontestable, uh, incontrovertible evidence. It's, we're dealing with degrees of probability here. That's what we are doing. When you make a claim about fight fixing, you are making a claim not just about what you are watching. You are making a claim about the architecture behind it. So, for example, 
I've tried, and again, there's no unified theory here. Some people believe Ken was just doing it. Some people believe Ken and Kimbo were doing it. Some people believe Ken, Kimbo, and Bellator were doing it, right? There's different theories of, of what it means to have a fight fixed here. None, none of them all work together, by the way. Um, and they're all pretty bankrupt, if you ask me, for a couple of reasons. One, there's no actual evidence of it, right? What you're talking about is you see a fight and you see something that looks unusual. And I'm telling you, it is unusual because it's two old guys who don't know how to grapple that well. They're going to do things poorly and make poor decisions, uh, relative to anyway. I mean, they'll beat the average guy on the street. Kimbo can beat the average guy on the street, even at 51. Ken can too. Um, and, you know, Ken's got a Hall of Fame career. But, um, you know, we're talking about the current state of things. And by the way, have you watched any of Ken's recent fights before his comeback? I mean, this idea that it's like he should have back control like BJ Penn is just ludicrous. Um, but you're making a claim. You're making a claim about a web of architecture. So, for example, someone said, well, maybe Ken was Ken just wanted to do it by himself. Okay, why would Ken want to do it by himself? What is your motivation and what is your architecture there? Because now the theory has to work. Well, someone said maybe he wanted to throw the fight because people betting on him, uh, he could get more money. Well, that doesn't work because he was the underdog, right? So why would you throw a fight if you're the underdog? You throw the fight if you're the champ uh, and you want the underdog to win, so you bet on the underdog and then you throw it and then the other person wins. That's how fight fixing when that happens works. If you're the underdog, you don't throw the fight because then people lose uh, <laughs> betting against you. Okay. Uh, well, they win money, but it's it's if you if you bet on Kimbo, you win money. But the point is, you want to bet on the uh, uh, opposite to happen, right? If, you, if Ken is the favorite, you want to bet on Kimbo to win because you can get Kimbo for more money, and then he wins, and boom, there you go. So that theory is, doesn't work at all. Then you have uh, well, so I had someone say, well, maybe someone paid Ken. Okay, who would pay Ken, and why? Like, why does that make sense? Some random donk just wants to pay Ken to lose money. How do they gain money? They're not going to gain money from gambling, at least not much. You have to put way more down on Slice to get money. You have to put much less down on Ken. So why are they just going to pay him money because they want to see Ken lose? How does that make sense? Someone said to me, well, it could have been Kimbo's camp. Dude, there was no fighter I talked to in St. Louis who thought Ken had a shot in hell. Certainly not Kimbo's team. He was the favorite. No one, no one in Ken's uh, Kimbo's team ever thought it'd be necessary to like secure a victory. They thought it was inevitable. So I'm not sure exactly how much theory that that, that theory makes sense. Well, it could have been Ken and Kimbo. Okay, why? I, I don't know uh, what 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 Ken and Kimbo would have done without Bellator's cognizance. That makes much more sense. So then people said, well, what if Bellator was in on it? Well, what if? As Jimmy Smith pointed out, number one, if there was any evidence that was true, they would lose their promoter's license for life. Essentially, Scott Career would flush his entire toilet uh, career down the toilet. That's the first thing that would happen. Uh, Viacom would also have you know serious issues to address. Um, the guys who committed it would be a felony. You go to jail for committing a crime. Fight fixing is a crime. Crime punishable by jail. It's a felony. It's not a misdemeanor. It's not something where all oh, those scoundrels got away with it. No, you go to jail for that. So now you're asking, why would someone risk going to jail, ruining a multi-million dollar operation, and potentially down the road, billion, for one fight for Kimbo? Well, people said, well, they wanted Kimbo to win because it would look good. And certainly no one can contest the fact that I'm sure Bellator would like to have more fights with Kimbo down the road. This ain't Gary Shaw in 2008. Let me pull up his record here for just a second, if I may. Uh... When, when Seth Petruzzelli knocked out Kimbo Slice, oh, remember that? That was Elite XC Heat. 
Okay. That was scheduled, that was October 4th, 2008 at the Bank Atlantic Center in Sunrise, Florida. We all remember it. The uh, Elite XC, I'll put this up. Elite XC held one more event after that. It was a uh, their Challenger Series. Remember the show XC? But they had another event scheduled after that that never got that never got that never happened. I talked to folks who worked at Pro Elite after Kimbo got knocked out. They went out of business. They were at the end of a sixty million dollar lifeline. They had blown through sixty million dollars. Pro Elite. They needed Kimbo to win to save them. Bellator is not even remotely in the same position. Would it be nice? Sure. Who could say otherwise? But they're not financially reliant upon him. They are not nearly in the same dire kind of straits that Elite XC is. And if Ken had won, I don't know that it would be quite as nice, but you could use him even again. If you're going to use him once, why can't you use him twice? Especially if you had sub Kimbo right away. Right? So this idea that like they had to get Kimbo to win because it had to produce a certain outcome, it doesn't match with the facts. They don't actually. It would be it's not like against them, but it's not so critical that they would want to commit a felony and risk going to jail and career ruin to get it. Again, can we say that with any um, um, perfect certainty? No. But so here's what the whole I think I think thing boils down to. All this is a degree of probability. My theory to you about what you saw, which was bad grappling with weird choices being made, I don't I don't think anyone disputes that. My theory to you is it's a 51-year-old guy who's never been a back expert, who didn't train the ground for years, who tried to he-man a choke that was close but no cigar, and it didn't work. And once he didn't, a guy like Kimbo Slice, who doesn't train all that much but probably has just enough left to know that he can hand fight and get his way out of it, managed to do that. And then once he got on the feet, obviously those punches seem pretty real. My, that's my theory. The other theory is that you have one, two, or multiple people committing felonies for marginal benefit – in broad daylight on national television. That is not a particularly likely theory. Is it impossible to discount? No. But when we're talking about the simplest explanation typically being correct, the simplest one is that they're just not that good. And frankly, if you watch low-level MMA, uh, I would say high-level amateurs and low-level pros, you see mistakes like that all the time. You see mistakes like that all the time on the Bellator prelims. The Bellator prelims, you want to see dudes sacrifice throw themselves uh, or sacrifice throw their opponents into mount on them, the Bellator prelims have got you covered. I've never seen dudes who try more Sayanagis or lateral drops or whatever the case and throw their opponents in mount on top of them. It's, it's comical. It's comical. Um, but you see this kind of weird decision-making all the time. And when you see this and the hand is covering the forehead, you know the choke's not on right. You know it's not with a right angle tight maybe finish some guys not enough to finish this one this wasn't good enough and when he went to readjust it's too late guys never want to readjust a choke they think is tight because they're going to lose position you always kind of want to ride it out um and then when it doesn't work you're kind of in a bad position unless you transition you know some guys lose the arm bar they go to triangle but you know ken didn't have the 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 Husamar Palharis arm bar from the back you remember the arm bar he did from the back one time he has full back control then he whips for the arm bar you know, Ken's not that guy. Paul Harris is that guy. Ken's not that guy. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So, so, so that's that. Can I rule out 
that uh, fight fixing is a component here. No one can. It's impossible to discount. Can we say that's the most probable way of explaining this? No, you really can't. What you are introducing is an entire set of actors and money and motivation that doesn't quite line up with the consequences involved. It just doesn't. This isn't a company at the end of its rope. These guys don't have a history of, at least in terms of Bellator, of shady behavior. Certainly in the case of uh, what happened with Kimbo and Gary Shaw, there's always this weird feeling about him. And I think that's what's happening here. I think that Ken is living on a reputation that's slightly undeserved about being this huge, amazing grappling master. I think Kimbo is slightly still inheriting all the greasiness that came with Elite XC. And I think that, um, look, I think what criticism you can make here, I think this is the real issue. Bellator sort of invites the scrutiny when they make match make guys like this, where it's like two guys who just can't compete with anyone in their primes. And so you get this weird version of MMA. Um, and you have these like ridiculous pro wrestling theatrics. Everyone, all these MMA fans who are also pro wrestling fans, which I am not, they love to be like, we should get it more pro wrestling. We should get it more pro wrestling. And there's some of that I think you can incorporate safely. But when you really go pretty far in it, I think you invite this kind of scrutiny. That's why I think some of this, that's, that's what I think is happening here. I think people saw all that build up, and then, and then they saw this sort of like fight with a lot of bad decisions being made. And they think, well, there's got to be some connectivity here. And I don't think that's the craziest thing in the world. So Bellator needs to sort of figure out what the balance is here because I think they went a little too far, and that's why they're dealing with some of this right now. Um, and I think the last thing I'd say, though, is that, uh, and I talked about it, if you saw my interview with Scott Coker, there was a lot of negativity around Strike Force that I think when it was all over, a lot of us in the media were like, okay, maybe we went a little too far. It appears that we are ready to do that again with Bellator. It appears that we are ready to do that. When Bellator was like a distant number two, there was a lot of negativity towards it. A lot of it justifies some of the decisions going revenue made. Sorry. Um, hang on. A lot of the decisions Bjorn Rebney made were, you know, uh, odious. Um, they were never really doing a whole lot to amaze you. You know, you had Tito and Rampage out there on TNA hitting each other with hammers, and you were like, what is this? But now that you have sort of Bellator trying to grow up a little bit and make a bigger show, make a bigger spectacle, um, you can at least conceive a possibility where they can move into a much more clearly spaced out number two role. Uh, I don't think they're there yet. I mean, they are number two sort of by default, but I mean like a real number two. Um, which they're not yet. And so it, what appears that we are doing, once again, again, I think some of the scrutiny is invited. I think some of the scrutiny is fair. I think f fans have a reason to be skeptical of combat sports generally. I truly do. So I'm not, I'm not mad at people who are like, well, you know, it's a little weird. Okay, it is a little weird, but as you think through it, it's not as weird as it looks, to be perfectly honest. And then the other key component here is, are we really going to make this mistake again? When Strike Force went away, we were like, oh, you know what? It's actually a really good organization that really didn't deserve any of the things that we heaped on it, at least not, not all of it. Some of the criticism, of course, is well-deserved. But I think there was a lot of regret. I've talked to other media members about it. There was a lot of regret about the way in which Strike Force was covered because it was unnecessarily harsh. It appears that we are ready to do that again. It appears that everyone is ready to be like, oh, Bellator, number two, or, you know, approximating number two. You know, we are ready to then, you know, pull out the knives and stab as much as we can without sort of like critically thinking about not that there are not criticisms to be made, but what are they? To me, it is that they are blurring the lines a little bit. They are inviting criticism. Uh, the other one you can make is to what extent is, is the spectacle, um, you know, distracting, you know, they're going to have a cage and a ring, these sorts of things. But, alle but allegations of illegality, 
allegations of you know felonious crimes, right? You need to have a clear system set up to explain that, both in terms of actors and motivation and reasoning. And it's just, I mean, you can do it. You can say, well, here's my theory, but it doesn't really add up. These guys want to ruin everything at the Bellator level because they they want to flush their reputations on the toilet by being involved with a billion-dollar company after having no ever any history of this in the course of their career. Okay, no, that doesn't sound very likely. Well, maybe Ken and Kimbo did it, but why would Ken and Kimbo work out an arrangement independently when Kimbo probably thinks he's going to win? He was favored to win. Every fighter I talked to thought he was favored to win down in St. Louis. No one thought it was going to come close. So then you have, well, just Ken through it. Well, Ken was the underdog, so that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, maybe someone paid Ken. Okay, well, why would someone pay Ken to do that? The theory just unravels. There's just not a lot of evidence for it. We can't rule it out, but in the degree of probabilities, it is much more probable that what you saw on Friday night on Spike TV with the good ratings and all in the main event was just bad MMA. And that's it. And that's not the sexiest story in the world. That's not the, oh, my God, I now have, I now have room for my outrage. But that's what it is. So unless you have evidence, which, look, if you got evidence, I'm willing to hear it out. I mean real evidence, a paper trail, something you can prove were motivating factors. But just watching bad MMA and calling it fixed, that to me does not hold up. So until next time, friends, I appreciate you watching. I'll see you again next week. Next week, we will return to a full-on um, breakdown of all the cards. So there's a Bellator card and a UFC card. It's going to all get done. Thank you for your patience. This will go up on the site momentarily. Um, yeah. Email me with any questions. Luke.thomas at SBNation.com at SBN Luke Thomas on Twitter. See y'all.